Hi, everyone. This is Steve Bowes. And before we start today's HR Happy Hour show with our guest, Lars Schmidt, I wanted to take a moment to thank our fantastic sponsors. First, our friends at Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. With the onset of COVID-19, Paychex quickly responded to support businesses and help them manage the new challenges brought on by the pandemic. The Paychex COVID-19 Help Center is the ultimate comprehensive resource hub featuring articles, videos, scenario tools, live webinars, and podcasts that provide valuable and up-to-date insight on stimulus measures, managing a remote or hybrid workforce, travel restrictions, state-pacific guidance, and more. To access this valuable information, go to payx.me slash helpcenter today. And also by WorkHuman. The world is watching the leaders of today and tomorrow. Modern employees want a workplace where they're respected, seen, appreciated, and heard, and they're demanding it. Employees have the right to a human workplace. You have the power to create one. And thriving organizations like Cisco, Merck, and LinkedIn have realized the immense benefits of putting the human at the center of work. Get your copy of the book, Making Work Human, on Amazon today. So thanks to Paychex and Work Human. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the HR Happy Hour Show with Steve and Trish. Trish, I have a quick update for you. On the date we're recording the show, I also had the first formal HR Tech Conference fall kickoff meeting. Really? The event in late September in Las Vegas. And we're very optimistic we'll be able to be at the event in person in Las Vegas come late September. So Trish, here's my question for you. I know you are a fan of Las Vegas or have been in the past. What is your favorite place to visit, to go to, to eat in Las Vegas? Give our listeners a Las Vegas pick. Oh, my favorite place to go is the spa in the Venetian. I love it. I was going to say a restaurant, but that's like too easy. So no, I like going with our friend Madeline Lorano. I like being in the salt rooms and all of the other relaxation rooms they have. So, yeah, I cannot wait to get back. Good. How about you? I'm going off. Can I I guess yours? You you might be able to get it, but go ahead. It might be risque. You better just say it. It is not risque. So if that was going to be your guess, you're incorrect. It's Vegas. There are a lot of uh, risque things you could do in Vegas. Uh, if, if you're gonna, if you're into the risque show, what? Would, oh God, I'm forgetting that. I'm blanking on the name. Absent. Absent. Right. Outside of Caesars is a great show. Definitely adults only. A good time though. Good. Good evenings of entertainment. But no, Trish, I'm going Neon Museum. I have been there only once. Oh. But I will love to go back. They. It's also called the Neon Boneyard. It's known as. It's the place okay. where they take all the old neon signs from old Las Vegas, classic Las Vegas neon signs, and they have them arranged out in this huge courtyard. It's an outside kind of deal. Some of them are back in working order, so they light up if you go at like dusk or nighttime. Nice. It's a really cool tour. You can get some awesome pictures if you're into that kind of thing. So, super highly recommend the Neon Museum. It's just a short cab ride or Uber ride uh, down the strip towards the old part of Las Vegas towards Fremont Street. Yeah. Highly recommend it. That's my Las Vegas recommendation. That sounds good. I've never been. Well, you know, we usually don't there have time when we're in Vegas for if you're there for an event, you're honestly you're either speaking or preparing to speak or, you know, maybe eating quickly. It's there's not a lot of time. So but yeah. maybe our guest will have a good answer. 
I know he I might. I've probably been to Vegas once or Vegas twice. Experience. Let's welcome oh. him. Uh, we have a true real life author, Trish, on the show today, which is awesome. Our guest today is Lars Schmidt. He's the author of Redefining HR. You know him from all kinds of things as well, from his work at Amplify, his podcast. But I mean, let me give me get the proper introduction here. Lars Schmidt is the founder of Amplify, an HR executive search and consulting firm. He's spent over 20 years in the industry building a range of leading global companies. He's a writer for Fast Company. Company, author of the best-selling Redefining HR book, which we're going to talk about today, co-author of Employer Branding for Dummies, and host of the Redefining HR podcast. Lars, good to see you. How are you? Hey, I'm great. It's good to be here. And if I if I'm going if I'm going to Vegas, I'm going to go nostalgic and pick a Dre's nightclub. I spent uh, oh. many many a good evening at Dre's. I have no idea if that's like the cool spot anymore. Most likely it isn't <laughs> if it's the place that I'm referencing because uh, I'm old. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of good memories at uh, Dre's. That's the one up on the roof of that hotel, right? Am I thinking? So the, yeah, so they have like a day club, uh, yeah. and that's where they do concerts up there and you know, DJ sets. So uh, yeah, lots of lots of fun. They also have uh, the, the, the original Dre's was like a deep underground uh, club at uh, Barnaby Coast, I believe. This like divey casino, and uh, yeah, that was great. But the nice. day club is uh, is oh, quite wow. nice too. Nice. Good stuff. Well, cool. Lars, welcome to the show. First time I nice. think on the Happy well, Hour podcast. I, that's it, weird uh, to me that we've it, known it. each other. <laughs> Trish has known you. I've known you a long, long time. But uh, great to have you on. And uh, super congratulations, by the way, on redefining HR. Yeah, cool. thank Maybe you. Maybe we'll just start with that. What uh, what got, what was the impetus behind that? Because honestly, it sounds like writing a book to me really, really hard. Like you, uh, <laughs> like you, were, you really need to be pretty motivated to get that accomplished. So what's uh, yeah. the impetus for, for redefining HR? Yeah, you know, interesting enough, you also have to be really motivated to write a book during a global pandemic, which is uh, an interesting learning lesson of, uh, of redefining HR. You know, I... Uh, I've been, I've been thinking about a lot of what's in the book for, you know, years and years and years. Uh, part of, you know, especially the last five years, you know, once I started writing for Fast Company and some other places, I really wanted to shine a light on modern kind of HR and people practices with, with the hopes of by illuminating some of their work, it would make it easier for practitioners who maybe were in less progressive environments to, you know, level up their game and their capabilities and their impact. Um, you know, this, you know, I've been doing stories, podcasts, conference speaking. Those are all, you know, individual, uh, nuggets, if you will, like individual pieces of content around a certain thing, but they don't really tell a cohesive and connected story. And that's what I wanted to do. So the book for me was really a way of, of pulling all of those things together and actually developing like an A to Z cohesive story on what HR can look like at its best. You know, I, I agree um, with your approach. I have to tell you, when I when I first heard about it and then when I first got the book, um, you know, I'm someone who had worked in HR for many, many years. And my first thought was I was a little cynical. I'm thinking like, really? You're going to redefine HR? Come on. We've heard this a million times. Um, but I can tell you, it's it's actionable. And it almost reads to me like if a textbook or, or a handbook or a guide for HR was actually actionable. So, you know, a lot of times things are in theory and not able to be easily translated into organizations of all sizes. So first, I just want to give you a compliment because I think you actually really achieve that. And I think there are a lot of books out there that that don't. They're all theory. Yeah. So I really love the mix. Thank um, you. And, and I think too, just to mention to the listeners, if they're not as familiar with you, I mean, you've really held these positions in human resources and talent 
acquisition and talent management. And so I found that too. It's it's not like you're speaking as a consultant necessarily, even oh. though that's what you, what your role is currently. But you're you're bringing that real life expertise. I, when I when I wanted to write the book, uh, there were a lot of books out there that were um, academic takes on HR, consultant takes on HR. Uh, people who had these grand ideas of what HR should be, who've never sat in that seat or haven't forever. And yes, I was a practitioner for you know, 16 years before I became a consultant. So I, that, you know, that's still fresh for me, but I'm also not a practitioner now. I'm not in that seat now. And the world of HR now is, is very different even than it was when I was last in that seat seven years ago. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to pull in so many stories and case studies and essays from practitioners who are actually in that seat now doing that week now doing that work now. Uh, and so the, the book is really, it's their stories as much as mine, which I think was really important to me to not, you know, as a consultant guy, like, Oh, you should be doing this. You should be doing this. Like, no, this is yeah. how I see things, but let me actually bring stories of people that are doing this work and not to say that this is a, a best practice and everybody has to do this, but this works for them and maybe it'll work for you. So let's, let's see how they do it. And then you can decide for yourself whether those kind of practices will work uh, in your environment. I love that you mentioned the best practices because I know in the book you mentioned that, um, that that isn't always the way to go. And I yeah. do think, so you have both um, practitioner spotlights in the book as well as full-on case studies, right, that are more in-depth. Yeah. Um, just to give people a flavor because I, I want them to buy the book. I don't want them to to just get, get it all for free, right? But you have one that really stood out to me was you have one on why HR must be anti-racist to drive change. Um, it's a little bit early on in the book. And I think, again, that really s- demonstrates how you're getting practitioners who are dealing with those issues that are in the workplace right now, right? And yeah. Especially during pandemics. So how were you able to get so many practitioners to jump on board? Or was that difficult? Um, you know, fortunately, it wasn't. I think for me, uh, you know, I've been, I've been over the last years with all the different projects I've been getting involved in, I've been building a pretty broad and, and diverse global network of practitioners in different roles and uh, different organizations, different countries. Uh, and so, you know, the book started originally where I wanted to take some of the highlights from some of the po- conversations I was having in the podcast and kind of document those lessons. Uh, and then, so that, so I, that I started with that story narrative. I knew I wanted to capture some of those firsthand stories, um, but writing it in, in 2020, you know, I was able to account for, um, you know, the pandemic, the the shift to remote work at scale, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and the reckoning with uh, you know social injustice and and the, the the beginning of the conversation around building anti-racist practices in HR. So I was able to account for a lot of those things that we went through in 2020 uh, in the book. And I think for me, it was also really important because each chapter kind of spotlights uh, what I view as kind of a core fundamental component of modern HR and. In some of those areas, I've done a lot of firsthand work myself, and I'm, you know, I don't consider myself an expert in anything, but I, I think I go pretty deep. In other areas, I don't, you know, and but I know the people who do, and so I was able to pull them into those chapters and be like, okay, you know, I'm not a people analytics guy, but you know, Josh Burson is, uh, David Green is, Al Adamson is, like, let me harness their views, perspectives, work, etc., um, to really, you know, put an expert perspective on that chapter that I don't possess. Yeah, that's great. Al's my guy, by the way. So I'm glad yeah. you name dropped Al. One of my 
one of my uh, goes back. I go back with him for quite a while at HR Tech. So cool. Um, you know, it's weird. You know, it's interesting. Lars, you point out like pandemic, Black Lives Matter, um, shift to remote work. I'd add in this crazy year in the political world here in the USA, yeah. which was like nothing we've ever seen before. You could like, I think, make a decent argument. Honestly, if you're really trying to think thoughtfully about work, workplaces, the role of HR, how to support people in the organization, you could almost argue that anything written before 2020, I'm not sure how relevant it is, right? Because the world is so different and the yeah. events that have transpired in all of mm -hmm. our worlds and all of our workplaces are so profound that it takes like, you have to almost re-examine almost everything. Did you see that a little bit, Lars, as you were going through the, the stories and the case studies and working with a lot of the practitioners you talked to? Yeah, I did. I mean, I think 2020 was kind of a big fundamental reset on on HR. And and when I say it was, I'm not speaking for every practitioner and every organization. You know, there there are still many that are trying really hard to do things the way they've always been doing things. Um, but I think for organizations that were maybe dabbling in innovation, you know, dabbling in maybe doing things or against the the mold of how people typically think of things like performance or learning or mental health support or you know any any range of a number of things. Uh, that we've been thinking about that we're kind of forced to do differently in 2020, uh, it, it, it is fundamentally different. And so, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the, the book was something that I've been thinking about for a while. My, my procrastination and actually signing with a publisher probably worked to my advantage because <laughs> I was able to work all of that in. If I would have finished that early, uh, you know, it just, it wouldn't have been as relevant as it is. And I think that's partly why, uh, why it's, it's resonating with readers because it is, one of the first books, you know, kind of written in the period of the pandemic that accounts for what our world looks like today, because it's radically different for many of us than what it looked like in even January of 2020. Yeah, Steve, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that that little laundry list a, m a few moments ago, you know, remote work and, and communications and just, you know, all the different things we were talking about, because there is a whole section in the book um, when he's talking about uh, HR goes mm -hmm. open source. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to at least touch on this, Lars, because um, if you could talk a little bit about you started at the very beginning of the pandemic, really early, right? You already had HR open source, which I'd love you to give the audience just a little taste of what that is, how that quickly came to be. But then also you started a Google Doc that you shared publicly called Coronavirus HR and Business Communications and Resources Guide. And I know that, you know, as, as just an individual in this world, in this industry, when you first posted that, I was checking that almost daily for the updates you were collecting from people who are very um, forward thinking in our industry. So if you could maybe touch a little bit on what is HR open source and then how did that or did that guide any of this that you then put into the book? Because it, it feels like that might have actually been a really big part of it. Yeah, I mean, so HR open source, you know, I founded that with uh, my friend Ambrosia Vertesi, who was the head of people at Hootsuite at the time. And really, we what we wanted to do is to take a page out of open source software's playbook and say, could that work in HR? Like it transformed the field of software. Could something like that work in HR? We're typically, we're used to working in silos. Uh, you know, we, we don't typically share our practices and our templates and toolkits and, and learning. Uh, if you hear about things, it's at a conference and it's usually like a highlight reel. Look at all this cool stuff we did. You rarely get the like, oh yeah, but here's all the things we broke along the way. Like here's the things we messed up. This is actually our fifth attempt at doing this before we actually got it right. So you don't usually get that picture. And so we wanted to create a global community uh, around that sharing and openness and collaboration. And so that, you know, we grew that to over 
10,000 practitioners in over 100 countries. And Ambrose and I have since stepped down. We've turned that over to an operating board. Uh, now it's become a 5013C, so it's a formal nonprofit. And but that you know it, that 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 drive for open source and kind of working out loud and collaboration has always been in me, partly because that's how I learned coming up. You know, is I, I could even go back to you know HR evolution days, right? To you know throw some props here. I remember <laughs> when I was first getting involved in uh, in social media, like for work and blogging, and I would follow the HR evolution hashtag and you know see how all of you were were talking about your practices and sharing and collaborating, and that was that was really inspiring for me as somebody who is you know newer to that side of HR and and recruiting and social media, and so that that stuck. And so when the when the coronavirus piece happened, I was I was I'm in a few different CHRO and CPO networking groups. Uh, one in particular was starting to have some really robust dialogue around like, hey, I think this thing is coming. What are you doing? How are you approaching this? And right around that time, um, Coinbase, you know, open source their pandemic response plan, which is phenomenal. And so I was like, I need to get this out to more people. So I wrote a fast company story, uh, you know, with a bunch of resources that I knew HR practitioners would need as they navigated this. So, you know, shifting to remote work, looking out for, you know, potentially increases in racism and xenophobia, um, things like that. And then, you know, within, this was moving so fast, within four days, that piece was dated, right? It was already outdated. And so I was like, we need an open door, open source kind of cloud resource that can aggregate all of the stuff that's happening in, in real time. And so that was part of my delay in starting writing the book is, uh, you know, it's probably late February now for the first three weeks or so, I dropped everything to do nothing but that because I was like, you know, this is a, this is a moment for HR. This is a moment none of us have ever been through. Uh, we're all companies are looking to us for guidance. Like, how do we navigate this? Uh, and I felt I was in a unique position to do something to support that because of my own network. Uh, and so that was really how that came to be. I didn't expect it to go viral. You know, it was shared tens of thousands, I think ultimately hundreds of thousands of times. And, uh, and I, I get the point where I was getting locked out of the document. I'd have to wake up, set my alarm clock to get up at like four in the morning so I could add content in because it would freeze because so many people were in it. Um, but it was great, but it was just, it was really cool for me to see how many practitioners embraced open source and were willing to share their own practices and their own playbooks. Um, because I think that ability to see what our peers were doing allowed us to navigate those uncharted waters. Uh, and we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have those platforms where people were uh, willing and able to share. Well, I, I think it's an amazing example too for anyone who's considering reading the book that you're someone who actually lives redefining HR. You're not, you know what I mean? Back to that, you've, you've been the practitioner, you're someone who consults, but you also are someone who's out there and actively trying to better our industry by redefining the industry. So I just thought that was an amazing I know that's probably not why you put that in the book, but it, I feel like that was sort of the result as the reader feeling like, wow, okay, you've actually done, you've done the work yourself too, um, which was really inspiring. And I think it's really helpful. And it led, led the way for a lot of different companies and vendors and, you know, start putting together, um, information for their clients. So yeah, Steve, I don't know if you had a chance to, to look at that, but one of the things I would, I'd love to kind of ask you both about was, um, kind of tails off some of the things you just said, Lars. Um, there's a section where you're talking about um, new organizational models. 
And you're talking about sort of the old hierarchy, the career ladder, right, that that the three of us certainly were raised on. And I wonder from both of your perspectives, because again, you've both been practitioners, you've both been, you know, sort of on this other side as well. How is it that we as current leaders can manage differently when we were raised with a career ladder in place, right? And now I think we were already moving to something different. And now with 2020 and the pandemic, it's like that's been completely blown up. So honestly, I'm asking sort of both of you, how do you see the way that leaders can sort of redefine the way we lead within HR? Maybe yeah, I'm going to let Lars go first. I have Are a thought on this. Go first? Lars yeah, is our guest. And, and people, people, get a, people hear a lot of me talk on the show. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer. And then but I, I do have okay. an answer. Or I, have yeah, a, I mean, a, look, I have a comment. I think I think what's really important, uh, and I'll admit, difficult for some people to let go of the notion that what we went through and what we experienced coming up in our careers is what other people should experience. Uh, you know, and so that's like, you know, you you'd, even ten years ago, I remember, oh, those you know those millennials, they want promotions right away, they got to pay their dues and blah blah blah. And, and I'm like, look, I get you had to do that, I had to do that. You know, but I don't think we can apply the norms that we grew up under to current circumstances. Certainly we can't now, right? Like work is just different. Like there's a section I go into in the book called like, you know, work becomes, you know, work with quotes. Like the, so many things are out or shifted from the, from the gig economy to freelancers to, uh, you know, hybrid and kind of agile teams that work that are deployed differently within organizations as opposed to traditional, very structured hierarchies. Um, uh, people moving to different, I think one of the single most transformative things to me in modern HR is the amount of people that have moved into this function from other areas of the business. You know, the traditionally, when we came up, if you wanted to work in HR, you came in as an associate, you worked your way up, manager, director, VP, yada, yada, you know, and, and it was a very insular field. We had very insular thinking because of that. I think if you look at the field now, people are coming in from marketing and creative and and IT and sales and all kinds of different roles and is bringing new thinking, new disciplines, new capabilities. Uh, and that's happening up and down the organization from the CHRO all the way down. And so I, I think we're better for it. I think we're healthier for it. But I think, it, you know, for those of us that have been you know doing this for a while, we have to let go of some of those, uh, you know, expectations and norms that that we came up under because that's just not the reality today. No, I was just going to say uh, on that, it's interesting too. I think it becomes easier, or at least I feel like it becomes easier with new tools for us as people maybe who came up a certain way to reach out to people like you're saying, maybe from other disciplines who have come into the field. I was on um, on the clubhouse the other day, which I'm still struggling with, uh, you know, do I really find value there? But I, I guess... I am finding some value. There was a whole um, discussion going on with like a hundred people who had come into HR from other disciplines and they were looking to HR professionals, current HR professionals to give them some guidance. So it was a really robust, interesting conversation. But I think that, you know, those sorts of things didn't exist for us. You know, it's certainly not 20 years ago and definitely not 10 years ago. So I do feel like there is opportunity if you are in an existing HR leadership role or close to that. Um, and you are kind of set in your ways, there are certainly new things every day that you can maybe become part of, even if you're not quite sure the value like me. 
I don't know. Steve, what do you what do you think? Yeah, well, I think it's a great question. What I started to think about as you asked the question, as Lars was answering, I, I, I filibustered a little bit so I could think of a better answer. So I, that was that was my strategy there. Like, uh, I think we, well played, well played. I think. Thank you. I think uh, it helps to think about and, and there's a lot of research that backs this up, too, is what are the real drivers of whether we want to call it engagement or happiness or satisfaction or connection to work or what we're. What are the things that really impact that and what makes people's work experience valuable and positive, right? And and yes, there's some element of that that's wrapped up in a better title, a bigger office, more money, maybe more power. Yes, I'm not going to lie. That still has some level of importance, but there's tons of data that shows that lots of other things are either equally important, if not more important, right? Things like opportunities for growth. Uh, opportunities to learn new skills, to be a part of something important, right? To feel like a valued member of, of a team and to be recognized for your, your contribution to that team and be able to recognize others, right? And I think that if you think about that and say, well, obviously in a flatter organizational structure that many organizations have adopted, which I think makes tons of sense, that traditional up the career path thing becomes either limited, significantly limited, and let's be let's be honest. It was always kind of limited. <laughs> the organization was always a pyramid, right? Only so many people were going to keep climbing it. But to think differently about how uh, we try to deliver those experiences to employees, because I think if if you do, if you concentrate on some of these other things, right? Maybe hopefully you'll find, and maybe large you can comment on this. Maybe some of the folks you talked to for the book had these experiences as well. You actually get a, you have a better workplace, a more happy workforce, an excited workforce. Maybe you can be more innovative. Maybe you can be more agile. Maybe people just have a better overall experience, right? Because God, I would never want to be a leader that had a workplace full of people who just didn't enjoy being there, right? Yeah. Or, or or kind of clawing each other on the way to the top, right? And some of that's cultural, right? Yeah. Certain industries, maybe it's financial services, big four accounting was like that forever. Maybe it still is. But um, I don't know. I, that's how I think about that was my kind of thoughts on it. Just when you asked the question, Lars, I'd love for you to maybe share your thoughts or maybe even a story from the book that that touches on some of these different ways of thinking about leading people. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I get into in the book, and it was less of a, a case study and more of a... a why don't we do more of this thing is, you know, we, we, well, when it comes to coaching, career coaching specifically uh, and career development, you know, too often uh, we look at that through the lens of a hypo, you know, and I'm using kind of an acronym here. We're all nodding our heads, high potential people. If you're HR viewers, you know what I'm talking about, but like we invest all that energy, like, Oh, this person's a star performer. Like we're going to give them all these things and put them on this career and give them mentoring and yada, yada, yada. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but what about the, the, the rest of our employees and and what what if we could create a program that was more of like an internal coaching program that actually spent some time meeting and this isn't necessarily like an HR business partner's job or an HR manager's job somebody who's really you know kind of trained in coaching and development that can help employees understand like what is it you want to do is it is it moving vertical is it moving horizontally is it is it trying this thing out over here um is it doing something that this company no longer offers you, right? Helping them leave the organization. We, we, we are terrible at that. Uh, we always view, you know, turnover. We look at, you know, regrettable and, and non, but we, we don't necessarily say, look, it might not be somebody like if you have an active low performer, yes, you want to move them out of the organization. You might have a medium to even high level performer, but they're capped out and, and their interests and what they want to do are no longer something you can satisfy their next step. 
So are you going to keep them? And like, yeah, they're contributing and they're making an impact, but they're unhappy and you're not getting them at their best. Or are you willing to have that honest conversation with them and be like, look, I know you want to do X. This is where you can go here. X isn't available here. We can't make any commitments to you about when that is. So maybe your best next step is somewhere else. And if that's true, we want to actually help you do that. And, and you know, the, the ultimately the end result of that is you're coaching some of your people to leave. And that may be counterintuitive to, you know, HR dogma around retention. But what happens when you do that, you know, now they're going out, they're talking to their peers. God, this company's amazing. They actually helped me. They gave me a package to leave. They gave me outplacement help, whatever it might be. Uh, they, they, they were honest and they were honest. And they said like that what I want to do no longer fits with what they can offer me. Uh, and they were, they respected my, uh, you know, my maturity to be able to have that kind of a conversation, but they also supported me on the way out. Like yeah. from a recruiting perspective, like if you build a reputation as that kind of employer, you know, it's going to be easy to backfill that person. You're doing right by them. You're doing right for your own pipeline. So I'm surprised we don't see more of that. Like I know that it's, it's an investment, obviously, to have a dedicated team doing that, but uh, I think it's a real opportunity. I can tell you from personal experience, I started my career at PricewaterhouseCoopers and, you know, mid nineties. And we had people who did that internal outsourcing. And it seemed really strange at first, but once you're again, sort of raised that way, when I got my next job, you know, 10 years later, I couldn't believe that they weren't doing that. So it does work. And not only do they leave with, with the, you know, the feelings like you're describing, they often became our biggest fans because they become our clients. Yeah. So they would go take, for example, like maybe they're not designed for a tax role or, um, you know, just a, big for public accounting is really cutthroat. It just is, you know, it's, it's sort of still that upper out mentality, even though they say it's not, it just is. And so, you know, we knew, we knew those people that were in the middle were not going to go up. So why not put them at a client or a company where we, wanted to do work with them. And then they move up the ladder there and then they would be, you know, become your best customers. So yeah. yeah, I think it can be done very successful. And those people, you're right. They do leave feeling cared for, yeah. which is really what HR wants. You know, you want people to feel like you're listening, you're hearing their needs, you're caring for their best interest. And again, it's going to come back to you tenfold or right. more. Right. Yeah. So, Hey, Lars, we're, we're, uh, running out of time, but I just figured we'll wrap with this. Give me like, give us on our listeners kind of one little like favorite story or just, Hey, I wrote this or something surprised you and putting together the book or something you, when you heard about it or, or actually dove into it in a little more detail, you said, man, this is so cool. I just want to share this, not giving away the book. The book's got a lot in it. We don't want to give away everything. Like, yeah. yeah. We want people to buy the book, but give, give us one little nugget from the book that says that really stands out to you, you know, even still after completing the book. You know, I, I think what I what I really appreciated in in having some of those interviews and conversations was just the level of candor and openness and vulnerability in some cases of HR executives, like people, you know, big name HR execs, big companies, uh, people who are you know looked at and idolized by by practitioners who are willing to say like, hey, like you know, yeah, we did this really well, or we, we screwed this up, or like, I personally screwed this up and taking that accountability. Like, I just love their, often when we look at executives, uh, you know, we, we kind of view them as personas, right? And they have to be perfect, and they say all the right things, they don't screw anything up, and like, that's bullshit. Like, they're human, they do that too. And, and what I respect about the kind of 
uh, you know, archetype, if you will, of, of some of the modern HR executives is they're willing to be that way. They're willing to share those warts. And I think it allows them to connect with their employees uh, in ways that those, you know, buttoned up persona oriented leaders just can't. And so I want to see more of that. I think that doesn't apply just to the CHRO. I think that CEO is all the way down, particularly coming after, you know, what we've gone through in 2020, where you know, we've all been inside each other's homes. We've seen each other's dogs and kids and everything else. Like there, there's no work and life. Like it's all like one big thing. And so we can start being more real as executives. And so uh, I have uh, admiration for people who are willing to do that. And uh, I, I discovered a lot of that in the book. So yeah. that's awesome. Great. Oh, yeah. The oh, book's yeah. Redefining HR by Lars Schmidt. Get HR. it wherever you get books, which is probably Amazon, right? That's where you get books. But uh, <laughs> That's where I bought my copy. And Lars, you know, uh, <laughs> coveted. I'm looking in the show notes. One of the coveted first name Twitter handles. That's remarkable, by the yes. way. That, I, I may yeah. think that's a greater achievement than this book. It, it might be. It might be. There's <laughs> a story behind that. We're gonna we'll run out of time. We'll have to share that another time. But uh, but yeah, happy to uh, happy to have that. Nice. So uh, awesome. It's great to great to see you. Great to catch up. It's been too long. Uh, wish you great success with the book. It's, I know it's blowing up. Uh, everyone's talking. Tr- literally, Trish is talking. Trish started just started talking to me about this book. I didn't even know she didn't even got it yet, and she was talking to me about it. So uh, it, I was a little it's excited. <laughs> great, great stuff. So, okay, great. So we'll put the link to uh, how you can find the book in the show notes, how you can connect with Lars. Thanks so much again, Lars Schmidt, for joining us today on the HR Happy Hour Show. Trish, good stuff. Well, we must thank our friends at Paychecks and Work Human for all their support. That's right. Doing great, great stuff. As always, I uh, hope I get a mood tracker check-in soon. I'm ready. I feel good today. I'm ready to check in. Oh, on my let's mood. track your mood right now. That's a good way to do Five it. Five stars. <laughs> I'm excited. Awesome. All right. So, uh, okay. For our guest, Lars Schmidt, for Trish McFarland, my name's Steve Bose. Thanks so much for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. We will see you next time. And bye for now.